Well, thank you very much. Now, uh, I'm not sure about that uh, Oriental cuisine. I noticed on TV some years ago when they were having the Olympics in Korea, that dog is a delicacy. <laughs> I don't think I've sang Dare to be a Daniel since I was a kid in Sunday school. Uh, it couldn't have been more appropriate, however, because I had decided to speak on Daniel this morning, so somebody was inspired. <laughs> I trust I am, too. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. Trust the Holy Spirit will add his blessing to the reading of his word. The book of Daniel begins with history. It ends with prophecy. It begins with the fall of Jerusalem. It ends with the future of Jerusalem. It begins with the king of Judah and the king of Babylon. It ends with the king of kings. It begins with the downfall of the monarchy. It ends with the dawn of the millennium. The book divides into two equal parts. In the first six chapter, we have Daniel and his personal friends. In the remaining six chapters, we have Daniel and his people's future. We're all familiar with those lovely stories of the first six chapters. We learned them when we were very young. They are some of the most exciting stories in the Word of God. In chapter 1, we have the story of a king's dainties. Daniel had been deported uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon at the age of 18, when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar swept across the fertile crescent and descended on Jerusalem and took the place by storm. When he arrived in Babylon with his personal friends, many other members of the Judean nobility, the aristocracy and the intelligentsia of the country, the cream of the country had now been deported to Babylon. I dare say Daniel expected that he would find himself taken out to the Babylonian equivalent of Siberia. Instead to his astonishment, discovered he was going to be housed in royal quarters and eat in one of the imperial dining rooms and that the food on the table was straight from the royal kitchens. I've often imagined his friends, some of them, uh, looking in astonishment at the uh, array of tempting food upon the table. Uh, they didn't waste much time digging in. I can just imagine one of them saying to Daniel, Here, Dan, try some of this honey-baked ham. Or, I never had pork and beans before. It's pretty good. <laughs> or, how's some, how, some of this shrimp salad? And Daniel said, No, thanks. You're not eating anything, Daniel. No, I don't intend. I'm not eating any of this. This is from the royal kitchen. This is meat that has been offered to idols. In any case, some of it is unclean in the sight of God. They would say to him, now look here, Daniel, you're rocking the boat, son. 
We're in Babylon now, not Jerusalem. When you're in Babylon, you do as the Babylonians do. It's too dangerous to be picky about your food here. You better eat it. You're going to get us all in trouble. Daniel said, I'm not eating it. I'm not eating it because God says it's unclean. They say, well, look, Daniel, come on. Now, that's just ceremonial law. That's just ritual law. Daniel says, I don't care what kind of law it is, God's law. God said, I'm not to eat it and I'm not eating it. If I starve to death, I'm not going to eat that. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Others could do what they wished. I tell you, my friend, you'd have never heard of Daniel if he hadn't done that. Who were all the rest of them? All the other members of the Judean aristocracy. Who knows and who cares? All we know is of one young man who dared to stand for God. Come what may. A king's dainty. Chapter 2, we have the story of a king's domains. Daniel was now 22 years of age. One night the king went to bed and had a dream. When he woke up in the morning, he he said to his wise men, he said, I had a dream last night. He said, they said, is that right, your majesty? Yes. They said, I want to know what it means. They said, we'd be glad to tell you what was the dream. He said, I forgot. You tell me what I dreamed. You tell me what I dreamed, and I believe that you can interpret it. And if you don't tell me what I dreamed, well, I know exactly where you're coming from. You're a bunch of quacks, and I know what to do with you. Now, come on, what did I dream? You can't tell me? Where's the executioner? They were rounding up the rest of them, and Daniel was hauled uh, away to the execution yard, and on the way he said, what's all this about? They told him, he said, the king's in a bit of a hurry, just a minute, tell him to wait till tomorrow. I'll tell him tomorrow what his dream means, and what it was. There was a stay of execution that night. I can well imagine Daniel and his personal friends had a prayer meeting. Most of us would want to have an all-night prayer meeting. But after Daniel had committed himself to God, he said, good night, fellas, going to bed. Don't you think this is a time to have an all-night prayer meeting? No. We had an all-night prayer meeting years ago. We'd never be here if we had. I'm going to bed. I've, I've committed to the Lord. I can trust it. It's a good job he went to bed. You know, supposing he hadn't gone to bed. Suppose he'd stayed all up, up all night having a prayer meeting. Well, he went to bed, went to sleep. When he was sound asleep, God gave him the same dream he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Good thing he went to bed and went to sleep. Woke up next morning. He said to the other fellows, all right, fellas, he said, I, I know what it's all about. He went in to see the king, and the king said, all right, son, what was it? What did I dream, boy? Make it good, son. He said, my lord king, you dreamed of an image. It had a head of gold, belly, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet part iron, part clay had ten toes. And as you looked at this great image, my Lord King, you saw a stone cut without hands come hurtling from the heavens. It smote the image and ground it to powder. It was blown away by the wind and in its place. 
that stone grew until it became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. That's what you dream, my lord king. The king said, son, tell me. What does it mean? What does it mean, boy? My lord king, thou art this head of gold. The living God of heaven is handed over to you, Gentile world power. Later on, the Lord Jesus would add to that the comment that this was the time of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles would run all the way from the days of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon down through a successive coming and going of kingdoms and empires, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire then, on to the very end, a ten-nation confederacy. And in the days of the final form of the last empire, God himself would come and his son would smite Gentile world power and establish in its place a Hebrew empire that would reign, he would reign on David's throne from the river to the ends of the earth. A king's domain. Chapter 3, we have a king's demands. Now, we have any idea, of course, where Daniel's, uh, where Daniel was on this occasion, his three friends dominate the picture. The king was absolutely infatuated by his dream. He thought it was a marvelous idea. Gentile world empire, something glorious, something to be put on a pedestal, something to be worshipped. Gentile imperial power. Empire over the nations of the world. Magnificent. He made an image of gold, set it on a pedestal in the plains of Dura, demanded everyone come and worship his image. Big brass band and all the musical instruments, the orchestra. When the music sounded, everyone was to fall flat on their face. Everyone did except these three young men. One supposes Danny was either homesick or he was away on the king's business. Down they went, flat on their face, all except three young men. They stood straight and tall against the skyline of the world. The king looked at them. He said, you fellas, deaf. Don't you understand, good Chaldee? I'll say it again. When the band plays, down you go, or else they... That burning, burning, burning fiery furnace is fixed for you. Now then, one more time. They said, don't bother. Don't bother. We're not bowing down to your image. Our God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. We are not bowing down to your image, O King. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O King. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. We know what happened. In they went and out they came. And in between, the king saw one 
like unto the Son of God, made a deep impression upon his heart. He'll never be quite the same again after that. The testimony of three young men in the face of a king's demands. Chapter 4, we have a king's dream. This time the king dreamed of a tree. I don't know what this king ate going to bed. <laughs> Always seemed to be dreaming. He used to say when I was a boy, if you ate cheese going to bed, you'd dream. Maybe he had cheese at night going to bed. Anyway, he dreamed again, he dreamt of a tree. And he saw its branches spreading wide and the birds of the air coming and nest, resting and nesting in its branches. He saw its shadow cast across the earth. Great spreading tree. And then that tree was cut down till only the stump remains bound about and seven times came and went and at last it began to sprout again. The king was troubled by his dream. He didn't bother with his wise men much this time. He sent for Daniel and said, tell me, sir. Let me tell you what I dreamed and tell me what it means. Daniel listened, and then he said, My Lord King, I wish with all my heart that I can interpret this dream for your enemy. But I need to tell you, my Lord King, that this dream is a dream of judgment upon you. Because of your pride, and your insolence, and your forgetfulness of the living God, who gave you this great empire. You're going to be cut down, my Lord King. You're going to go insane. You're going to think you're a wild animal. You'll eat straw like an ox. You'll be insane for seven years. But God will hold your kingdom together for you. At the end of seven years, he'll restore you to your empire. And now, my Lord King, if you wish for this dream to be annulled, the thing to do is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Daring way to speak to an absolute monarch not known for his patience. Time came and time went, and in the process of time it so happened that Nebuchadnezzar was walking across the magnificent boulevards of Babylon. He looked out across the hanging gardens and those massive walls, great and tall, and the flowing Euphrates coming right through the heart of that magnificent city. The glorious Ishtar Gate, the palaces, that impregnable city. His heart was lifted up in pride. He said, it's not this great Babylon that I have built. And it says that a watcher struck him down. I have any idea why it is that God uses watchers. Why the omniscient God, the all-seeing God, the God who knows everything, omnipotent God who does everything, the God of all power, why he should have watchers. That's one of the great mysteries of the universe, why God uses angels and people to accomplish his purposes. But he does, and he has watchers, part of his unseen government of the affairs of this world. There are watchers out there. And that's what they do, they watch. We are allowed to go so far 
and get away with so much. And then there is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary line between God's mercy and his wrath. When Nebuchadnezzar passed that hidden boundary line, he was struck down. When Herod passed that hidden boundary line, he was struck down. God draws a line in the sand, and he says to the proud tides of men thus far and no further, and here shall thy proud ways be stayed. A watcher. He watches still. We are being watched from another world. Now we have the story of a king's doom. Daniel was now 88 years of age. He'd been in Babylon for 70 years. He went when he was a lad of 18. He'd been there throughout the entire period of the prophesied captivity. The last king of Babylon was Belshazzar. He was actually the son of the reigning king, vice-regent of Babylon, had the courtesy title of king. That's why he offered to make Daniel third ruler in the kingdom. He couldn't make him second because he was second. And this young upstart, this young pagan, threw a feast. And everybody was anybody came to the feast. And he decided to toast the gods of Babylon and the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple of the Jewish god in Jerusalem. So he did, and he pledged the gods of iron and brass and wood and stone. And all of a sudden, out of the sleeve of the night came the hand of God. He began to write across the plaster of the palace wall and disappeared, leaving those letters blazing there. The king sobered up. He went white as a sheet. He trembled and shook upon his throne. He offered immense rewards to anyone that could read that writing. Queen Mother said, call Daniel. He'd been in retirement for many years. An old man now, stooped and gray. He comes in and looks at the evidence of a drunken rebel. He sees the sacred vessels in the temple of Jerusalem, defiled by this godless king. The king says, can you read that? I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom. If you can read that. Daniel says, can I read it? Of course I can read it. It's a letter from home. And he read it to the king. He said, keep your gifts. You don't have any kingdom kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. God's weighed you in the balances and found you wanting. You come to your hour of death. As he was speaking, the engineers of Cyrus the Persian were diverting the flow of the Euphrates River. Those impregnable walls that no one could have stormed 
were bypassed. The armies of Persia marched right down the dry riverbed into the heart of the city. That night, it says, was Belshazzar king of the Chaldeans slain. Well, that's more than a date mark. That's a very important and significant statement in the book of Daniel. That night, Belshazzar king of the Chaldeans slain. To understand the significance of that remark, you have to go back to the book of Genesis. Everything has its roots in the book of Genesis. Go back to Genesis, you read of the day when Noah, having planted a vineyard, drank of the fruit of the vine, and he was found drunk and naked by his son Ham. Whatever else happened, we do not know, but something happened, and Ham went out and told his brothers he thought it was a huge joke. His brothers, Shem and Japheth, walked in backwards and quietly and reverently covered their father's shame. When Noah woke up, realized what had happened, the spirit of prophecy came upon him. His three boys stood before him. He looked at Ham and passed him over in total silence. Had nothing to say to him, good, bad, or indifference. A terrible state of soul when God won't speak anymore. And King Saul found that God would no longer talk to him. He knocked in vain at the door of heaven. He went down and knocked at the door of hell. And God opened the door and pushed him through. When Jesus stood before Herod, he had nothing to say. Herod had murdered John. To him, Jesus had nothing to say. Here was a young man standing before his father, guilty of some unmentionable sin. Ham looks at him, Noah looks at him, passes him over in silence. But he picked up his grandson, picked up Canaan, son of Ham. He said, Cursed be Canaan. That's not vindictiveness, that's prophecy. That's vision. Noah was able, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to look down the centuries, and he clearly saw the rise of the Hebrew people. He saw a land that God would promise to a man called Abraham. He saw that man prepossessed by the devil's seed, the children of Canaan, the Canaanites whose religion was unspeakably vile sanctified pornography and perversion. Cursed be Cain. That was prophecy. And then he turned to Shem. He said, Blessed, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. The name Shem means the name. That glorious name. That name above all names that name at which every knee shall bow one day. 
that saving name, that sanctifying name, that sovereign name, all wrapped up in the name of Shem. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He said, oh, my dear boy, God bless you. God's going to send his son into the world one of these days as a result of you through your seed. And he turned to Japheth. He said, God shall enlarge Japheth. World empire, my boy, belongs to you. God's going to enlarge you. You're going to be a world conqueror. That's what you're going to be for. And the day will come when you'll enter into the tents of Shem. You'll enter into the spiritual blessings that are going to come into the world through your brother. Deceived. Then the spirit of prophecy departed from him and the Holy Spirit wrote it down upon the sacred page. God shall enlarge Japheth. Now the devil was listening to all that. The devil searches the scripture. The devil doesn't know the future except in the most limited way. What he, if he wants to know anything, he has to try and find it out from the Bible, but he can't understand the Bible. We understand the Bible. Anytime he quotes the Bible, he misquotes the Bible. He uses it because he distorts it. He listens to prophecy. See what's going to happen. Found out that God was going to enlarge Japheth. He said, that's all. I'll prove God alive. And he went to work on the stage of history and the first great mighty empire was the empire of Egypt that was Hamitic. Next great mighty world empire was Assyria. Then came Babylon. These empires were Hamitic, Semitic empires. And for century after century, that prophecy stood unfulfilled on the page of history. God shall enlarge Japheth. It wasn't Japheth, Japheth that was enlarged. It was Ham and Shem. I suppose anybody who knew any, anything at all about the Bible could say, I could show you one place where God's wrong in the Bible. I'll show you one big mistake in the Bible. Look right there. Look, it says God shall enlarge Japheth. Never happened. The devil went around laughing at God's people. That night, it was Belshazzar king of the Chaldean slave. And that night, world empire passed out of the hands of Ham and out of the hands of Shem into the hands of Japheth, and there it has been ever since, and there it will remain. Until that stone without hand comes, cut without hand comes, Put an end to Gentile world power. The last world empire will be the revived Roman Empire. So the, the signs of that upon the stage of history are all around us today. That's why the Antichrist has to be a Gentile. False prophet is a Jew. But the beast who rules the world is a Gentile. If he's a Jew, then the Bible's wrong. Got to be a Gentile. God shall enlarge. Japheth. World empire remains in the hands of Japheth from the day of the Persian Empire right down to the days of the final form of the Roman Empire. The Lord Jesus will come back and smash that. Install his own magnificent empire. 
So we have a king's dainties and a king's domains and a king's demands and a king's dream and a king's doom and a king's dismay, the story of Darius, who was vice-regent of Babylon under Cyrus the Persian. The story of that silly, silly law that he made. They could only get Daniel, those men who hated him, to back in power, back in office again. And they could only get at him. They knew they couldn't find anything in his tax records. They went and searched through the files of the IRS. Couldn't find anything on him there. They, 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 they went through his previous administration with a fine tooth Couldn't get anything on him. He'd never done anything wrong. Absolute integrity. Of the highest order. What a testimony. That's a First, every politician in America ought to read. Ought to read that sixth chapter of the book of Daniel and read the story of a man whose enemies, motivated by hate and jealousy and malice, couldn't find anything on him. Except as regarded his God. They knew they could get him, but only in connection with his God. They persuaded the king to sign this silly law that nobody could ask anything of any man save the king for Thirty days. That little boy couldn't even ask his mother for a second helping of pudding. She'd have to say, you're going to have to go and ask the king. Goes up to the palace. Finally gets to see the king. Please, sir, can I have a second helping? Well, all the stupid, silly laws to pass. Well, of course, man, it's in the stupid, silly thing. How you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den? I often think of Daniel as they let him down into the den of lions. God's angels already gone in there, shut all their mouths. They were hungry, those lions. They kept them hungry. And Daniel goes over to one big lion. He says, lie down, pussy, I need a pillow. King says, is your God able? Is your God able? Hallelujah. We have a God who is able. Daniel and his personal friends. Then you have Daniel and his people's future, chapter 7 to 12. Now these, of course, are the difficult chapters, and I can do no more than just touch lightly on these chapters. They're fascinating chapters. The chapters that the foundation of any understanding of Bible prophecy. You must get a grasp of these chapters if you're going to understand God's purposes in history. What you need to do on the way out is buy one of the few remaining copies on the table of exploring the book of Daniel. That's what you need to do. Here ends my commercial. I like to get my commercial in the middle of my message. If I put it at the front, the tape maker chops it off. But I weave it into the middle, you see. Then people say, can I get a tape of that? And on my tapes go all over the country. Halfway through, they get told to go and buy a copy of Exploring Daniel. If they got any sense, they'll go and do that. Sir. Chapters 7 and 8, two coming dictators. Chapters 9 and 10, two critical delays. Chapters 11 and 12, two complete disclosures. Chapter 7 and 8, two coming dictators. In chapter 7, you have a vision of the Antichrist. In chapter 8, you have 
a vision of not Antichrist, but Antiochus. Uh, in both those chapters, there's a little horn, but they're not the same. That's very confusing, isn't it? Not when you study it, Kurt. What you have in chapter 7, Daniel sees again the dream of four world empires, only whereas Nebuchadnezzar saw world empire as a glorious thing to be put on a pedestal and worship. Daniel saw world Gentile power as something bestial and savage and brutal. Saw four wild animals. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a monster. A lion was the Babylonian Empire already passed into history. The bear was the Medo-Persian Empire now dominating the sea. Greece, the leopard, not yet a threat, but way over there in the great sea. And the monster, only dimly apprehended, but more fully revealed later on in the book of Daniel, the great Roman Empire, and the ten horns corresponding again to the ten toes, the final form of the Roman Empire, when it will come back at last as a ten-nation federation. You see the power lines of that all being laid down in Europe, at this very moment, they already have a European parliament. It doesn't have very much power, but it's all there waiting, just waiting. They're making the final moves now to European currency. They're talking in terms of a European federation. One nation, United States of Europe, survived Roman Empire. It'll take finally twist and turn down history a little bit, but it'll finally emerge as a ten-nation confederation of European powers that will be the most powerful economic, political, military entity on this planet. It doesn't have any of that right now. It's just disunited and doesn't really carry a great deal of clout except a bit of economic clout. But the reason of that is it's a body, body politic without a soul. The soul comes into that body politic when the Antichrist emerges. And he's seen in this chapter as a little horn coming up amongst the ten. And he pulls up three of them and then he rules all ten of them. Eventually, as we learn from the book of Revelation, he rules the whole world. Daniel doesn't get that far. He just sees this Roman Empire. Dimly apprehended, seen in its final form, and the, and the little horn, that final dictator, the Antichrist. When you come to chapter 8, you have a entirely different picture. You've got, you've got the... Uh, goat and the ram, the he-goat coming from the west, the ram coming from the east. There's no doubt as to what they represent. The he-goat from the west was Alexander's great empire, and the, the ram coming from the, the east was the great Medo-Persian empire. Xerxes, the great Persian king, had, had stirred up Greece, wanted to conquer Greece, failed to do so, but they never forgot. And when Alexander came, he determined he would strip that Medo-Persian Empire of all its power, one of the most thrilling chapters in ancient history. That notable horn between the eyes of the he-goat, that was Alexander himself. How he swept away the imperial, massive, mighty power of the Persian Empire. A matter of weeks and months. Time and time again, the, the Medo-Persian king tried to make peace with Daniel. Tried to, tried to surrender. Daniel said, no surrender. I'm taking it all. Went right on 
to the Indus. And if his men hadn't got mad, he'd have gone on to China. Then that horn was broken. Alexander died quite young. The drunken orc. Four horns came up instead. The one. Symbolizing the division of Alexander's empire amongst his four major generals. Two of them drop out of sight, but two of them remain important and they are taken up in great detail in the 11th chapter. The king of the north, the king of the south, Syria to the north, and Egypt to the south, and little Palestine in between the butt of their politics. Invaded first from the north, then from the south, then from the north, then from the south. Until finally that little horn comes up amongst the four. Now that little four, little horn in chapter 8 is not the same as in chapter 7. The little horn in chapter 7 is the Antichrist. Coming up out of the Roman Empire. The little horn that emerges in chapter 8 out of the four, out of the divisions of Alexander's Empire that little horn is known to history as Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. He called himself Antiochus the Illustrious. Antiochus the God. His contemporaries called him Antiochus Epimenes. Antiochus the Mad. But he took Jerusalem and he determined that he was going to make Jews conform to his empire. And he had his image in their temple. He demanded all Jews to be circumcised. He had a bloodbath of persecution, a reign of terror. He sacrificed a sow upon the altar, sprinkled broth made from sow's flesh all, all through the holy place. He wasn't the Antichrist, but he was a picture of the Antichrist. Two coming dictators. Chapters 9 and 10, you have two critical delays. But I see we've run out of time. And then you have two complete disclosures. You have the vision of the 70 weeks, and then you have the vision of the secret war. Fascinating chapters in the book of Daniel. Unfolding the great events that lead straight to Calvary and then leap over the centuries of the church age and usher us into the last seven years. Right down now at the very end, one of these days the church will go home, the Antichrist will come and sign that seven-year treaty with the nation of Israel. And then these things will be. Well, I just trust that I have whetted your appetite and that you go back now and study the book of Daniel get lost somewhere along the way, I can recommend a book that will help you through the rest of those interesting chapters. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much for your goodness and grace and kindness to us, and we pray thy blessing upon us this day. Jesus.